we're back. Welcome to the first episode of the Africa Health Ventures podcast, formerly known as Aid Evolved. In this podcast, we're going to unpack what's going on in healthcare in Africa today. But that's not all. We're also going to be looking at the innovations, the ventures, the entrepreneurs that are going to help us leapfrog ahead in the next 10 years. I'm your host, Rowena Luke. And in this episode, we're going to be tracing the movement of a pack of medicines from manufacturers around the world all the way to the shelves of a mom-and-pop shop in Africa. We've put together a pretty stellar cast of industry leaders to tell this story. We'll be speaking with Yusuf Rasul, the Director of Global Market Access at MSD, also known in the United States as Merck. Sid Rupani, Senior Advisor for Supply Chain at the Global Fund, Clinton D'Souza, former director of public health for Imperial Logistics, one of the largest medicine distributors in Africa. Michael Moreland, the CEO and founder of Field Intelligence. Mila Nipomenishi, the lead advisor at the Center for Innovation and Impact at USAID. And Dr. Prashant Yadav, a global expert on supply chains in Africa, affiliated with INSEAD and Harvard Medical School. This episode will be aired in two parts. In the first part, we'll cover the medicine supply chain from manufacture to pharmacy. And we'll explain it in the words of individuals who have worked at various stages in that supply chain. In the second part of this episode, we'll touch on some of the things that we didn't get to in today's recording. For example, how certain donor-led supply chains are just run in a completely different way. In that second part, we'll also glimpse into the future, sharing the predictions and trends from our speakers about the things that are going to dramatically change the African medical supply chain in the next 10 years. And last but not least, we're going to highlight some of the ventures that are disrupting the African medical supply chain today. Just before we dive in, quick public service announcement. If you're interested in healthcare ventures in Africa, subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest going ons. That's at africahealthventures.com newsletter. If you want to nominate a promising seed stage startup, bringing better healthcare to Africa. Or if you want to be notified of future investment opportunities, get in touch with us at africahealthventures.com so we can help connect the dots. One last friendly reminder. The content here is for informational purposes only. It should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security. And now, on with the show. Now picture this. You wake up one day in your home in Nairobi or Accra, and something's not right. You're hot, you're cold, your body's shaking. You've got malaria. Left untreated, malaria can lead to severe illness or even death within 24 hours. So you need help. Malaria alone accounts for half a million deaths in Africa every year. But lucky for you, it is treatable. After you get diagnosed, you walk to your local pharmacy, you pick up some pills, and you take them for a couple of days. You'll be fine. But have you ever wondered, what does it take for that pill to get to that pharmacy? Who put it? on that truck, or who sailed it across the ocean? How many hands did it pass through before it ended up at that store down the street from where you're staying? In its simplest form, the medicine supply chain can be pictured as four key actors. First, the manufacturer, 
who makes the drugs, the distributor, who moves the drugs, the pharmacy or clinic that dispenses the drugs, and you, the person who takes the drug. You can imagine these manufacturers with their large and sterile factories at locations all around the world, but mostly in India and Europe. They're mass-producing medicines to meet rigorous international quality control and at volumes that can serve the needs of many countries at the same time. Next in the chain are the distributors. These guys are responsible for moving those medicines across oceans, across borders, over the miles of roads and rails, and even ultimately through rivers and over mountains to where it needs to go. The third actor is the one that's actually in charge of dispensing medicines. This could be a hospital, a clinic, or most commonly, a pharmacy that's responsible for handling and prescribing that medicine to you. And as you can imagine, each step along this journey is an adventure of its own. First up, let's hear from Dr. Prashant Yadav. Dr. Yadav is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development and affiliate professor at INSEAD and a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. He's one of the leading scholars in the world about how the medicine supply chain works in Africa. Here, Dr. Prashant Yadav gives us an introduction to who are some of the big players and what are some of the key changes we're witnessing today in the medicine supply chain in Africa. So a lot has been going on in the last four years. Supply chains for health products have certainly gotten to the radar screen of um, heads of state, certainly uh, health sector leadership ministers, but also for large investors in the health sector, including large global private equity firms, venture capitalists, who are all thinking about there is a big market in Africa. There is a large population that remains underserved. This market is slowly rising in its value, and our delivery systems to serve this market aren't ready the way they ought to be. So there is both a moral imperative for serving people who are not served well and a business imperative because there's also at the end of this revenue streams and money to be made. So I think that those two things are converging together somewhat better than they have in the past. The big actors are still large government purchasers of medicines and health products. Governments typically have these supply agencies through which they purchase and distribute medicines for the population. They still remain to be the large purchasers and big actors in the market. There are the more traditional private wholesalers. That market has seen some consolidation. So Imperial Health, Labrum, a few of the newer private equity groups. So that's more of the conventional wholesaling industry that is going through some consolidation. But the new group of agencies have evolved, which are the new social entrepreneurs. Even in that brief description, Dr. Yadav reveals two very distinct faces of the medicine supply chain in Africa. One is the public supply chain that's run by the government with public funds or by international aid agencies. These public systems are the largest individual procurers of medicines in Africa. And at the same time, we also have the private supply chain. Private sector, international, and global distributors that can work with the government, but also work with an army of private or faith-based hospitals and supply the hordes of small pharmacies 
scattered throughout villages and cities on the continent. While the purchasing power of these entities is less, the flip side is that these private pharmacies, both small and large, tend to be the first port of call for someone seeking treatment. And of course, there's that last actor that Dr. Yadav mentions, the new cadre of innovators and entrepreneurs that are seeking to fill the gaps in both the public and the private supply chain. Now, let's turn our attention to the large global pharmaceutical companies, many of whom you know already, and how they work in Africa. We speak with Yusuf Rasul, the Director of Global Market Access at MSD, also known as Merck in the United States. Yusuf sets the stage for us on the role of big pharma in this supply chain. And he also sheds some light for us on why it's so hard for manufacturers like Merck to work with individual countries in Africa and the market forces that lead them to favor international distributors. My first question for Yusuf was, in the medicine supply chain, where does the work of MSD or Merck begin? And where does your work end? In the supply chain, it's really in terms of R&D development, manufacturing, and then supply to different wholesalers or MOHs, that's Ministry of Health in various countries. That's in, by and large, the world. When we look at continents like Africa, it's a little bit different. So yes, we still play in that area, but how we go to market is a little bit different. You know, we don't particularly have subsidiaries in every one of the countries, so we would work with a partner organization in a market that we do not have a presence. There's a step before supply chain and even cost, and that's as simple as regulatory foundation, right? The one issue that we have in Africa is that we don't have a harmonized regulatory framework. 54 sovereign states, each one wants to have their own sovereignty in terms of regulatory framework. And that means that an organization or a large multinational company like MSD that comes with new chemical entities needs to file in every one of these 54 countries. And that in itself becomes a huge challenge to getting medicine to people. Only after this regulatory approval takes place, then we can start looking at things like uh, supply chain and affordability. But if we don't have regulatory approval, we really finish before we start. So it turns out, for all that it feels like the big pharma companies are everywhere, in practice, they don't keep a ton of their staff and their work here. The trend is that big pharma is keeping fewer and fewer staff on this continent. That means there's a much bigger role for the distributors to play. When you think of supply chain, it's often the work of the distributors that's top of mind. What does it actually take to move medicines from a factory in Switzerland to the shelves of that pharmacy that you visited at the beginning of this episode? We speak with Clinton D'Souza, former director of public health for Imperial Logistics, one of the largest medicine distributors in Africa. They were recently acquired by DP World, so Clinton often refers to them as DP World. For me, living in South Africa, Imperial Logistics trucks and warehouses are everywhere. My first question for Clinton was, could you paint a picture for us of the current state of medicine distribution and transportation in Africa? And my experience, there are a couple of sectors. The first is you have a relatively small number of very large multinational organizations. 
companies like DP World, who recently acquired Imperial Logistics, have got networks in several African countries that are both transportation for medical supplies, but also run distributor businesses, as I mentioned. You have Europharma, which is a, a part of CFAO. They own a big global distributor in Mission Pharma, but they also own 23 wholesalers and distributors in 23 different countries, mostly majority of which are in, in Francophone Africa. And there are others that have got, there are two or three other organizations that have got similarly large networks, Sergi Farm, Philips, etc. But in reality, they make up a very small percentage of wholesalers. Now, in, in some of their markets that they operate in, they're very dominant, 20, 30% market shares. But if you look at the more sort of Anglophone countries in Africa, it's far more fragmented. Lots of players, small market share. They tend to be family-owned organizations. And the, the sort of mantra for almost all of these distributors is to secure the sole agency in a country for a particular manufacturer. So, for example, uh, Sergi Farm wants to be the distributor for GlaxoSmithKline in Kenya, for example. Mm-hmm. And they want to secure that as a sole distributorship. And they're all, all of the wholesalers, big or small, are trying to secure these sole distributorships. Um, and the challenge is that the, the focus is on these higher value, more expensive type products, because that's where the margin is for a distributor, where they can make their money. But it tends to be at the expense of lower value, quality generic products which would be more affordable for consumers. So the bigger guys are focused on the more expensive products and pay less attention to the smaller stuff. The smaller guys get in on the smaller stuff, the smaller generic type products that have got less margin. And this is part of now where you have this issue with substandard product coming in, right? Mm. So now you get but not such good stuff coming in. People are buying the, the cheaper stuff. Do they know where it's really coming from? And you end up with this issue. Just something to sort of a caveat to all of this is that according to the World Bank in 2020, 30.35% of medicines procured in Africa procured out of pocket. So this is people taking their own money and buying medicines from private sector pharmacies, clinics, et cetera, versus 10%, 10.02% in North America and 14.4% in the European Union. So just to give you a sense that there's a lot of out-of-pocket expenditure going on. And so these wholesalers who supply retail pharmacies, et cetera, are a critical link in not only quality, but also in what they bring in. So if they choose not to bring in lower value, higher volume generic products, and they bring in the more expensive stuff, yes, there's more trust in those brands. And this is why a lot of the consumers move towards those more expensive products. But it's expensive. And for people Mm. who don't have a lot of money to start with, this is sort of part of the dynamic challenge that we're living with at the moment. Pay attention to what Clinton just said. This is one of the key market failures. This is the part where the system today is falling apart. 
where you can't get access to basic supplies for childbirth or malnutrition. This is one of the structural market gaps we need to address. The fact that we can ensure good supply of high-end, expensive drugs, but that we consistently see a failure to stock essential generic medicines. So that's one challenge with distributing medicines. Higher margin products are just more appealing to a commercial enterprise, which disincentivizes the supply of low-cost generic medicines. There's another challenge, and that is all the layers of middlemen that exist between the manufacturer and the pharmacy, each one adding their own markup. Back to Clinton. So the way that the chain works is, let's assume you have the distributorship for GlaxoSmithKline in Kenya, Zambia, wherever. They invariably are going to want you to secure financially an order before they release it. Right? That makes sense. So let's say you place an order for $300,000. They're not going to give you 90 days to pay them. <laughs> They're going to want some kind of letter of credit. They're going to want some kind of guarantee before they ship. Hmm. And so this becomes a barrier for many of the smaller guys. They don't have that kind of money, that kind of cash available. And so what ends up happening is the smaller distributors end up buying from the sole distributor in country in the smaller quantities that they can afford. But of course, now we have margin on margin. So you have, for example, and you're buying it from GSK for 100 the sole distributor in the country is selling it down for 180. The smaller distributor is buying it at 180 and selling it down at 240. And the retail mm. pharmacy is selling it at 350. And so literally you end up with the price at the retail end being three and a half X of what it costs to bring it in versus if you could take one of those layers out, the price kind of drops to 240. So you could reduce the price to the patient, to the person buying it dramatically if you could shorten that chain. So we're seeing two major structural imbalances in the distributor market. One is a tendency to favor higher margin, more expensive, branded drugs over low-cost generic medicines. And the other is the way that the market continues to favor the big guys the major distributors that can buddy up with global pharma companies. When in fact, it's the small guys, it's the ecosystem of local distributors that often reach much farther into the towns, villages, and communities of a country than the big guys are even interested to go. But it's not just a failure in the market for distributors. There's also challenges at the level of the pharmacy or the hospital. So let's go there. Let's peer inside the world of one of these pharmacies. I certainly didn't plan it this way, but it just so happened that as I was chatting with Clinton, I learned that he's now become a business partner to a chain of pharmacies in Zambia. And it was fascinating to chat with Clinton about the struggle he's now facing with this new hat that he's wearing as a partial owner of a small pharmacy business. Here's Clinton speaking as one of the clients, and particularly one of the small clients of a large medicine distributor. 
He explains some of the reasons why it's so hard for a small pharmacy to maintain continuous stock of all of the essential medicines. So a few years ago, I had the, the privilege of investing in a retail pharmacy business in Zambia called Five Star Pharmacy with my good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Lloyd Matoe. And over the last three years that I've been involved, we've grown from seven pharmacies to about 15. And it's given me a perspective that I really didn't have before. We currently work with one of the big distributors in Zambia. We essentially place orders on a biweekly basis per store. And they pick and pack and prepare those orders on our behalf. And then we collect them and take them to the stores and go and deliver them. Because we've grown, we've had the manufacturers and the distributors of those commodities approach us directly and offer us pricing on those products that are more favorable. But our challenge is a lot of the things I've talked about, right? Yeah. They want us to buy in certain quantities, which we don't necessarily have the working capital for. Now we've got to think about establishing some kind of warehouse pick-pack operation, which we haven't really gotten the money to go and develop. So the working capital gap for small pharmacies is real. Even for Clinton, a man who clearly has the technical expertise to manage large distribution channels, even Clinton just can't access the working capital he needs to unlock the lower pricing that's been offered to him. Like many small pharmacies in Africa, he struggled to raise the upfront financing that could stock their shelves with more low-cost medicines. But change is in the air. As Dr. Yadav mentioned at the start of this episode, there are new ventures that strive to fill the gaps in these markets and economies. To hear how these solutions played out in practice, we tracked down Michael Moreland, founder and CEO of Field Intelligence. Field Intelligence is a social enterprise based out of Nigeria that is not only digitizing the business of buying and selling medicines. It's also filling that financing gap, ensuring that pharmacies, both big and small, don't need to take the financial risk of stocking essential medicines. Today, Field Intelligence is supporting over 35,000 clinics, pharmacies, and drug shops with technology and services for planning, procuring, and financing essential medicines. To begin, I asked Michael to describe for us the kind of pharmacy that he first started working with. The small points of care, which are often the front lines of healthcare delivery in a community. Most points of care are community pharmacies, and they're run like retail stores, much like you'd see retail shops all over the world. CVS, Walgreens, Boots, Clicks. You see these large chains, and they're retail stores primarily, and they are financed like retail stores. They're often owned by a family or by a single sole proprietor, and they have a hard time accessing financing to invest in the kind of catalog of products that the patient really needs. This access to financing affects retailers and SMEs across these small businesses across Africa, all sectors. But it's particularly challenging in healthcare because in pharma, there's a long tail on that catalog. You can Imagine that for a convenience store, there's a small number of products and the customer can easily choose between uh, flavors of a particular soft drink or their favorite snack. But when it comes to pharmaceuticals, 
the patient can present with anything and there, you need to be able to, to address a wide array of therapeutic areas and you need to have the right formulation, the right presentation for that patient in that moment. And so the burden on the retail pharmacy is to hold a much wider array of products and not all those products sell at the same speed and consistency. And so, you know, you have what is known as like the long tail. You have to have a lot of products and the likelihood of needing that product on any given day is low. And so the, when you don't have access to affordable, easy to use working capital in the financing, you end up doing what convenience stores do. You stock only the fastest moving things. You stock the things that you know you can get back very quickly. And the result is that when a patient shows up at their community pharmacy, the likelihood that they're going to have the specific drug that they need on that specific day is just very low. This is also because of planning and because of fulfillment, other broader supply chain issues. But this financing issue is particularly difficult. And so the pharmacies who try to run their business strictly on a cash basis and only being able to get what they can afford out of pocket end up having a much, much smaller catalog. And then the pharmacies that that go for financing, if they were able to get it, often end up with very, very expensive, very difficult to use loans that they have to, to service to the banks, which are really not mapped or appropriate for the kind of inventory management financing that they need. And the kind of financing they can get from their suppliers, the trade credit is really limited and really, really constricting. And so this financial component adds a layer of complexity and challenge to running a good, healthy pharmacy that can actually address the patient's needs and grow and operate like a good, sustainable business. That is compelling. And you can imagine exactly how that would work out where a population will be healthier if you're able to treat even the neglected diseases or the rare diseases. But a pharmacy, which is just trying to do business and get by, might end up just stocking the fast-moving commodities. And so we want to address that. We want to make sure a community has access to all the different treatments that might be needed for various different indications, even if they're not so common. So what did you do, Michael, when you came across <laughs> this space and you saw this yeah. challenge? How are you fixing it? Yeah. This financial problem is also tied into the rest of the supply chain. It's hard to look at any one thing by itself. You know, we're a software company at this point when we started this service, and we knew that we could help get planning right. We knew we could digitize those operations and that we could help them manage that inventory, but the access to financing was another challenge. And so what we did starting in 2017 was we started a version of what is called vendor-managed inventory. It's very much how the most sophisticated supply chains work. I think Walmart pioneered it in the 70s or 80s. It's the hallmark of a really mature supply chain where the vendors, the suppliers actually manage the inventory from the, from the retail operation. And that way the retailer doesn't have to worry about all the planning and the, the back end. And so we took this idea of we're going to do the planning for you and we combined it with consignment where we're actually going to own the product from your shelf until you sell it. So we're going to take that working capital burden off of the small pharmacy and onto us. And we will finance the working capital in this way. So we won't just give loans. We don't do that. We're not a bank, but uh, we could buy the product and distribute it across the network and hold it there. And then our belief was that if we got really good at planning, we could keep the inventory efficient and relieve the pharmacy from having this trade-off. And so, you know, we called it at the time, pay-as-you-sell. It was a pay-as-you-sell subscription. And so uh, much like the pay-as-you-go business model has been so successful in Africa and different industries, we went to market with pay-as-you-sell subscription. Uh, 
And it's been great. It has been the core of our business shelf life for many years now. We found that pharmacies, when they joined our platform, the size of the catalog would increase 75% on average. Wow. So an enormous expansion of patient access, just in terms of the number of drugs. Pharmacies would also have the confidence to add new therapeutic areas entirely, really become much larger providers in their communities. We also helped lower their cost to serve in a big way. And so we saw prices fall. And for us, it was very, very sticky revenue in that we were watching the, the retention of these clients very, very high. You know, once they're on the platform, there's no reason to leave. It's the uh, product show up on the shelf and it's just there. And it's our job to make sure that that's working for them. And it was a, a really high touch, high value service. What field intelligence has demonstrated here is how social entrepreneurs with their new technology and their new business models can aggregate the demand of the small pharmacies. Sharing some of the risks and taking on the infrastructure investments in technology and working capital, that it's tough for the pharmacies to do. In so doing, social entrepreneurs like Field Intelligence are giving the little guys a chance. They're helping the small pharmacies, the ones that reach the last mile, to be more competitive and ultimately to provide more low-cost medicines. So to recap, we've taken a look at the manufacturers. We've spoken mostly about the international manufacturers, the big brand names that necessarily work on a more global stage, relying on distributors to access the country level. Sidebar, there's certainly a movement towards more local manufacturing, but that's a separate podcast episode in and of itself. After the manufacturers, we've spoken with the distributors a diverse and complex network of organizations, big and small, international and local, who need to grapple with the economics of drug sales to get supplies across the country. And we've spoken about the healthcare facilities that are dispensing medicines, most notably zooming in on the pharmacies and how they need to balance the demands of their clients, their budgets, and the need for medicine availability, even if a disease itself might not be as common. That's the state of the world today. But this is the Africa Health Ventures podcast. And part of the reason this podcast exists is to point to the future, to the innovations and ventures that could dramatically improve lives in these rapidly growing markets. In that vein, be sure to join us again in two weeks when we speak with our guests from the Global Fund and USAID about how radically different the supply chains they support can be. We're also going to glimpse into the future and share predictions from our speakers about the regulatory changes, the political shifts, and the technology trends that are going to dramatically change the landscape of African medical supply over the next 10 years. And of course, we'll highlight a few of the innovators and entrepreneurs that we believe could really disrupt the medicine supply chain in Africa in the years ahead. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us. I hope you learned something of value to you about how the medicine supply chain works on this continent. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode when it drops. And if you want to stay in the know about what's going on with healthcare ventures in Africa, subscribe to our newsletter at africahealthventures.com slash newsletter. Last but certainly not least... If you want to nominate a promising seed stage startup, bringing better healthcare to Africa, 
Or if you want to be notified of future investment opportunities, get in touch with us at africahealthventures.com so we can help connect the dots. We'll see you in two weeks for part two of the medicine supply chain from manufacturer to pharmacy.